0: 18, Matthew chapter 18 tonight, I definitely uh, just want to take a second and just thank all the women that we have in the church for all that they do, definitely thankful for Thomas and Morgan and Ethan and Brianna for teaching as well with the kids, such a blessing to be able to have them help with that as well, just praise the Lord for all the women as well and all that you do. My wife isn't here tonight, not because she is sick, don't worry, alright, she's feeling fine, Um, but she is uh, helping a child of a mother who just had a baby, so they're they're watching them right now, but man, she definitely, I'm definitely thankful for her. You men know what I'm talking about when you're scared to say this out loud because you don't want it to go to their head, but your wife is rock, right? You need your wife. I need my wife, man. She helps me in so many different things, just the, the little things, too. You know, like, what time do we need to leave tomorrow? You know, and she's like, 8.30. Like, okay, you know, just things like that. Where's the keys? They always know where the keys are at. I don't know how it is. They always know where the stuff's at. And it's just crazy. Man. We'll praise the Lord for our lives. All right, Matthew chapter uh, 18 here. And I believe uh, we are in verse, we might actually be in um, 19. Give me two seconds here. Yes, it's 19, excuse me, I do apologize. Matthew chapter 19, and we'll start reading in verse um, 13. We're kind of just picking up where we left off, and lots going on in Matthew. Um, You know, just to kind of briefly just touch on it. Um, Obviously, the first part of Matthew, you know, we discussed all the things pertaining to the kingdom, right? All the things that God was doing there, offering that to the Jews. But in their rejection, right, he turns and he starts to talk about his ministry to the church and the postponement of that. And so we're kind of in a limbo um, in the middle of the book of Matthew, where he has, he has paused the mission to the Jews, specifically with that kingdom, and he has transitioned to the church. And so in this transition, as he makes his way back to Jerusalem, where he is to be crucified, um, he begins to impart spiritual truths to the disciples. And the disciples learn a lot, right? There's a lot of times, and we're going to see some of them, where you see the disciples um, messing up. It made me think of today, I'm like, man, if God wrote a Bible about us, <laughs> I was like, can you imagine how many things would be in there that, we, that we messed up or did wrong? But you're going to see him start to give them spiritual truth pertaining less to the kingdom and more to their ministry of the church. Because when Jesus leaves, right, they got to still perform the ministry. And that's where we have the book of Acts. And so just going through here, you know, Matthew is very, very clerical in his approach as well, right? You have Mark, Luke, and John. They're more emotional when they describe the events of Christ whereas Matthew is just straight to the point. It is what it is because his whole intent with his gospel is to show that the Jews rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as their king. So he just kind of goes straight to it. So you see the difference in um, his gospel as opposed to the the other gospel. One thing that I really enjoy to to look at is the way that the disciples act prior to the cross. And then if you go to those Jewish epistles, right? 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter, James where those disciples actually write letters after Jesus has been resurrected, the mindset and the way that they act and the way they talk about these things is so so totally different than it was when Christ was on earth. It's absolutely amazing to see their testimony kind of change. And it's all in regards to the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit and the resurrection. Jesus told them, once I go, I'm going to send the Spirit to you, and he's going to bring all things to your remembrance. remembrance. And it's just amazing to kind of see that work, Um, And all the aspects to those New Testament epistles, those New Testament epistles. So um, just some of the things that we've also seen, Christ addresses certain things such as discord, like we've talked about. He addresses forgiveness with the disciples. He addresses association with the disciples. And then in this specific chapter, going into chapter 20, he's going to really address pride uh, with the disciples. And so very exciting to kind of just go through here. In verse 13 of chapter 19, it says, Then were they brought unto him... Little children, little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer, little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. Now, the disciples, right, this is another instance where you got to give them some grace because they're still learning, okay? They got it wrong when that man was performing miracles in the name of Christ, and they rebuked him. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's okay, right? He's doing it in my name for my glory. Here's another instance where, you know, they say little children, so we assume that, that they must have been anywhere from the ages of an infant to maybe four years old because they had to actually be brought, you know, to him by their parents, so they weren't old enough to cognitively come up by themselves. But the disciples, it doesn't say that they turned the parents away It doesn't say that they, you know, he doesn't have time for this. It says that they rebuked the parents. It's a very strong word, as if the parents were sinning by bringing the kids to Jesus. And Jesus obviously has to make um, this correction specifically uh, to them because there's a very important spiritual truth that he has to impart to the disciples, right? Think about the parents, number one. The parents are identifying their faith with the Messiah by literally bringing their kids to him understanding who he is and wanting their children to take a blessing and part of this kingdom. So number one, we see the parents' faith. Number two, right, you have to come as a child to obtain entrance into God's kingdom. He said, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. The, the problem with the, the Jews, right, is that they had absolutely no dependence on God, and their dependence was solely on themselves. God says, if you're going to come into my kingdom, your dependence has to be specifically on me. You think about kids, right? They are totally dependent upon their parents, right? For everything, spiritual and carnal, right? Whether or not your kid's shower depends on whether or not you've taught them to do that, amen? Bus ministry, all right? It, 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 it's it's things that you impart to them, right? And so he told the disciples, you're missing the spiritual truth about these kids coming to me. When they, when the parents bring them to me, it's a testimony to the Jewish people around of how you gain entrance into my kingdom because you have to depend nothing else but me. You have to come as a child. Now, when I think about the disciples rebuking these parents, you know, we can only assume that they've grown kind of callous in their ministry. You know, before all of the, the vision of the transfiguration, right before God gives them the revelation of his kingdom, the disciples were to the most part pretty humble. But as God kind of helps them grow, you see the disciples start to get a little bit too big for their britches, if you know what I'm saying. And they start to kind of abuse the authority that God has conferred to them, and they kind of get calloused in their ministry. And they start to make mistakes like this, right? And you got to give it to them. I mean, the disciples, John says, if we were to record everything that was in the Gospels, the world's not big enough to hold all the books of everything Christ did. So these disciples, I mean, they were going and going and going and going constantly, right? They didn't even have Red Bull. I don't know what they used eh? all right? But they were going and going and going, and they would make mistakes like this. They would become calloused, and what they would do is they would, they would actually, they would forget the reason why they were doing the ministry in the first place. And as, you know, to take it to kind of a practical level, there's a lot of times when we do ministry and we kind of go through the motions and things are busy, we forget sometimes why we're actually doing these things in the first place. Right? We forget, you know, a lot of times when we're, when we're going and going and going and going, it becomes more clerical than it does spiritual. And we're just going through the motions and we forget that look, we're trying to win people to Christ. Or we're trying to help people grow. And that's very easy. It's very easy to have it, right? It's very easy to become a Martha, right? And you're serving and you're serving and you're serving. And you look at over over at Mary and you're like, she's just sitting at Jesus' feet. Jesus, aren't you gonna tell her to do something? And Jesus says she's done that which is which is needful, right? And because she's done it, it can't be taken away. And a lot of times we forget to sit at the feet of Jesus. When we're constantly serving, and we will make mistakes just like the disciples do, and that's something that they really need to to focus on. You remember when they come down in Matthew 17 from the Mount of Transfiguration, and they bring the the guy brings his son, and he's like, "None of your disciples could cast this demon." And the disciples come to Jesus after, and they said, "Why couldn't we do it?" And he says, "This kind doesn't come out, but by what prayer and fasting, right? You can't just serve; you have to also retain that form of devotion." Because you can't do it without Christ. And what the disciples would do is they would go and go and go, and they would forget that relationship, and they would make mistakes like this. And they would miss the whole spiritual point of what they were doing in the first place, right? These kids were coming to Jesus. It was a testimony. We already quoted it before, but God says that, You have hid these things from the wise and prudent, and you have revealed them unto names, right? Babes, babes, babes. Jesus even said when he was preaching to the Pharisees, he said, he said, the publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. do That's crazy. All these self-righteous Pharisees. He's like the sinners are are getting entrance into the kingdom because they know what it is to depend on me, whereas you don't. You have to come in as a child. It's dangerous when people are self-righteous, right? It's dangerous. If you've ever gone on door-to-door visitation, I'd rather go to the the hoodiest hood of all hoods than go to a suburb, right? I don't know what it is about people having a boat, two cars, a backyard, and and, and a camper. But for some reason, that makes them think that they just do not need the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas when you go to the places where people are in need, it is so much easier to confer the gospel to them. Right? Because why? They already know their dependence upon Jesus Christ. It was the, it was, I had the best conversations at Taco Bell with the people that were the lowest of the low because they knew they needed Jesus, right? And they respected it. And that's something that they face here. The cool part about coming into the kingdom as a kid is kids are honest, they're prideful, but they're honest right? Kids will tell you like it is. And God says, look, you got to be honest with yourself when it comes to entrance into my kingdom. That's something the Pharisees were not willing to do, right? You got to be honest. Kids are extremely honest. There's also the aspect of look. What does Ecclesiastes say? It says, remember now that creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Right? There comes a certain point when, when mankind, he gets to a certain age where he feels like he just has mastered knowledge, right? He has mastered all that is in the world, and he no longer needs to talk about these things of religion. Whereas there's a period of time in a child's life that is so liberating, freeing, that you can actually reach these kids, and that's why we love the bus ministry, right? There's You have a tiny glimmer of hope when these kids are still at an age where they'll come to Christ as a child, but once they get to the age where they just, they start thinking on their own, they start developing pride, right? Then it's so hard to reach them. You have to enter the kingdom as a child. Now, as we come into verse 16, this is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. It is absolutely amazing. I told you the other day that Jesus is a boss. And if we could just figure out how to respond to people like Jesus does, it would be amazing. What does Peter tell us? But sanctify the Lord in your heart and be ready always to give a man an answer for the reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Christ was just ready to answer people, right? And we ought to be the same. We ought to sanctify God in our heart and be prepared. In verse 16, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Right? This is the story of the rich young ruler. And we believe that he was a member of the Sanhedrin because Luke, Luke describes him as a ruler, right? He was probably a young Jewish member of the Sanhedrin, very prestigious, right? Very religious. And he comes to Christ and he makes the statement. right? And it's amazing. I believe that the rich young ruler is the epitome of, of what a person who thinks they are self-righteous is. I believe he is the exact image of that person. And there is so much that we learn in regards to the gospel coming out of this specific um, passage here. First of all, he comes to Jesus Christ and he says, Good Master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Right? Now let me tell you one thing, right? Self-righteous people do not care about being righteous. Right? Right? It's the biggest form of irony ever, right? They're, they are walking contradictions. Self-righteous people really do not care about good. They just want to know how much they have to do to avoid punishment and what they have to do to have people perceive that they're righteous. That's all they care about. This man doesn't care about Christ. He he isn't, God says, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. He doesn't hunger and thirst after righteousness. He comes to the Lord and says, What good, what good singular thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And he knew who Christ was. Right? He knew that he was pro, uh, prophesying of being the Messiah and that entrance into the kingdom meant that he would obtain eternal life. So he comes to the Lord and he asks him this question. Right, Self-righteous people do not care about actual righteousness. They just want people to perceive them as righteous, uh, as righteous and they want to avoid punishment. Right, What did Jesus say in regards to the Pharisees? He said, you make the outside of the cup clean, but the inside is full of dead man's bones. Right, That's all they cared about. That's all they cared about. And the biggest thing about self-righteous people, too, is they can fix everybody's problem but their own, right? They can look at every other person and know exactly how to fix their spirituality, but they themselves, right, they have problems in their own life. That's why Jesus, in addressing the Pharisees, says, look, before you try to take the beam that's out of your brother's eye, you've got to look at your own eye and see that you're blind, too, right? Or else you're both going to fall into the ditch. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, it says, let a man examine himself. If we would just examine ourselves, right? we would grow so much more spiritually. But these self-righteous Pharisees, man, they just they just could not get it. Paul himself said he goes, "But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection lest by any means when I have preached to others I myself should become a castaway." Right? He 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 understood the danger, right? Of looking at other people's problems. But this this rich young ruler comes up to God, "What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus is so right on the ball. In verse 17, at the drop of a hat, he goes, "Why callest thou me good?" There is none good, but one that is God. Remember, we read that this morning. But if thou wilt enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. Now, Jesus offers him two things here, right? A lot of times Christ would ask a question in regards to a question, because the biggest thing was, why are you asking this in the first place, right? Jesus cared about the, the intent of man's heart. And so Jesus offered him two things. He goes, why callest thou me good? And he goes, if you want to inherit eternal life, keep the commandments. What is Jesus saying? He's offering him grace, and he's offering him law. He goes, which one are you going to choose? Can you imagine, can you imagine as a sinner coming to Jesus Christ thinking that you are righteous enough to inherit eternal life? Can you imagine the audacity and pride you must have to come to Jesus? Jesus was looking at this rich young ruler in the face, knowing that he was about to pay for every sin this rich young ruler had done in his entire life. Can you imagine Christ as we come to him and we say, I, I am somehow good enough. And Jesus goes, really? I bore all your iniquities on the cross for a reason. It was because you could not, right? All the things that you did wrong, I bore in my body through the beating, through the through the scourging, through the death on the cross. I had to do that because you couldn't, but you want to come to me and act like you're good enough to get into heaven. Do you imagine what must have been going through our Savior's mind when mankind acts like they are righteous?" It's absolutely contrary to the law. Go, go with me. Hold your place in Matthew and go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 this morning. We're going to touch on it this morning a little bit, but Romans chapter 3 verse 21. This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing, right? We'll, go, we'll start reading in verse 20 or verse 19. Verse 19 is too good not to read. Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law. What's the purpose of that? That every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference." For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Paul says in verse 21 Where is boasting? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by a new law, which is the law of faith. You see, what happened was. And this is absolutely amazing. What happened was, is God gave his righteous law in order to, to condemn the world guilty before God, because there is absolutely no way that I can, as a sinner, as a human sinner, get back to heaven, right? My sin has, my sin has separated me from God eternally and sin did my mother conceive me. I was born into iniquity, right? And so I am separated from God. And the thing about God's righteousness is it's not an attribute. Righteousness is not something that God has. It's something that God is. So when mankind separated himself from God, the, the Godhead in heaven goes, how in the world are we going to take what we have and somehow give it to, to fallen mankind? And Jesus said, I'll go, right? Jesus says, Jesus came and God has prepared him a body. He lived sinless in a body, right? Because if you, if you went out and got a sacrifice, a lamb, it had to be without spot. It had to be without blemish. You know what we needed to atone our sins for God? We needed a human without spot, without blemish. There's only one that I can recall of. His name is Jesus, and he lived a life on earth, right? And what he did was he had to create a form of righteousness that we could attain to. A righteousness that's not in the law, but a righteousness that is without it. And mankind doesn't like it. I do not understand. Right? It's not of works where it's boasting. No, it's not of works. It's by the law of faith. God has declared Christ's righteousness, Right? For the remission of sins, and we talked about it this morning, right? God put his approval on Christ in the fact that he raised him from the dead. That was his stamp of approval. So if you're a human, you've got to put faith in the only, right? I can't put my faith in fallen Adam, in the corrupt nature. I have to put my faith in the new Adam. And that's what the world doesn't get. You know why? Because the world, for some reason, right? The world is, is made in the image of God, and we like to create things, right? Because God created things. We're made in his image, so we like to do the same. So we build skyscrapers and technology and medicine. We build all these things, but the problem is we don't stop our creation there. We try to create our own righteousness. But that's something that only God can do. God can do, and that's something that only God can give. See, the problem is we don't like this, this free righteousness of faith, and it's so foreign to us because we, we when we think about righteousness, we think about something we have to work for. And God goes, you can't work for it, right? And so it's just this this amazing salvation. That's why in Hebrews, right, they said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? How in the world are we going to escape judgment if God offered us free righteousness and we denied it and we held on to our own? And this is exactly what this rich young ruler is doing. You go back with me to um, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus offers him those two questions. He goes, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. See, if he, would have, if he would have said, I believe you're good because you're the son of God, and he would have sold his possessions and followed him, he would have made it into the kingdom. If he would have answered the first question, he would have made it. But listen to what he says in verse 18. He saith unto him, which? He didn't answer the Lord's question. He chose works over the grace of Jesus Christ, over the person of Jesus Christ. He says, which? Jesus goes, okay, you want to play this game? We'll play this game. He says, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, all things have I kept from my youth up. Now, first honest thing he says is this, what lack I yet? That's a, that's a genuine question, right? What the problem is, is look, when it comes to God's law, mankind will only magnify the part of the law that exposes his righteousness, not the part of the law that, that exposes his unrighteousness. See, God listed, God, Jesus knew this man. He knew every part of the rich young ruler that he had done right. And Jesus knew exactly the part of him that he had done wrong. And in in, the, in, in verse 21, Jesus said unto him, now look at the word Jesus used. He goes, if thou wilt be perfect. Jesus said, get on my left. If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell all that thou hast and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now listen to verse 22. Right? Listen to verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, right, the one area that Jesus pointed out that he had not obeyed, the sin in his life, the sin in his life. But when he heard that saying, he went away sorrowfully, for he had great possessions. The people that think they're going to get away with their sin without the blood of Jesus, it's like if Jesus didn't let up on the rich young ruler, you think he's going to let up with you at the judgment seat? You know, he's going to have this conversation with all the people that reject Christ, right? And they're going to boast themselves, and they're going to go back and forth until Jesus Christ points out the one area of their life that they messed up on, right? Lists all the sins, and we know that to be millions of sins, right? And they aren't going to be able to say a word. This man walked away from Jesus. And let let me tell you this. He had his possessions still. He had his riches still. He had his family still. But the one thing he didn't have was Jesus Christ. He went away sorrowful. Right, this world can have everything. Right, take the world but give me Jesus. This is such a great explanation of how people think that they can be saved, but they walk away from Christ. What how great how great you know it's, it's just such a terrible thing that we would walk away with Jesus walk away from Jesus. As we keep on reading in verse twenty three, then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples heard it. They were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? Right? They had grown up in a Jewish nation that exalted monetary gain as righteousness. Right? They despised the poor. And so the disciples were just floored at this question. They said, Lord, who can be saved? Jesus said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Verse 27, then answered Peter and said, now this is Peter, right? This is good old Peter. Okay, Peter sees something here, right? He goes, the rich man did something wrong. He walked away, but we didn't walk away. He says, behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Now, God doesn't rebuke him for saying this, right? Peter wasn't being prideful here. He was being genuine. He goes, God, we've left our jobs, our homes, our family, right? We've left everything for you. What are we going to receive? In verse 28, and Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that ye which have followed me in the re the regeneration." When the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now notice how he says, in the regeneration. Why? This generation that rejected Christ was already condemned. Christ was already going through the cross. And so what he's saying is, is when I come back, right, and I sit on my throne in the millennial kingdom, you also are going to sit on twelve thrones, judging Israel. It's a crazy thing. In the regeneration, Paul talk, or Peter talks about in Acts 2, when he's preaching to the Jews, he talks about the, the times of the restitution of all things, right? That verse we quoted this morning in 1 Peter 1, where Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath begotten us again, right? Because he was speaking to the Jews in that passage. He goes, we've messed up once, but because God shed the blood of the new covenant, not only the Gentiles have, have, have a hope of salvation, but we as a nation the day when God will put his law in our hearts, right? So that's what he's talking about here in verse 29. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. Now you do have to be careful here, right? Because Jesus is giving a foreshadow of the millennial kingdom in the tail end of the tribulation where people are going to have to forsake lands, family, children, right? They're going to have to forsake these things not obtain the mark of the beast and endure until the end, right? Having their faith set in Christ to have everlasting life, right? I have not, my my salvation does not hinge on whether or not I've forsaken my household or my family, right? But he's speaking specifically to the Jews. And he says, but many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. Now in closing, as we go, we'll just get a a few verses into chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man. Now see, he has to give the disciples some clarity here, okay? Because if, if I'm a human being, And I know this is the Messiah, the son of God, right? And he tells me that I'm going to sit on a throne in his father's kingdom one day. I don't know about you, but I feel pretty good about myself, right? I mean, it's pretty cool, right? I probably go to bed that night being like, this is awesome, right? One day I'm going to reign on earth with with the Messiah, okay? So he's got to kind of lay some context to the disciples to teach them. For the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them out into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They said unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right that shall ye receive. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard said unto his steward, "Steward, call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. You see, it was a union student. Amen. All right. Union 532, uh, kingdom. um, In in verse 10, but when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a penny. Right. They were talking about some benefits here. Right. We've labored all day. These guys just came out here. Right. You've given them the same wage that we have. And it says they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, "The last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal to us, which have borne the burden of the heat of the day." But he answered one of them and said, "Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny?" He said in verse fourteen, "Take that thine is, and go thy way, and I will give unto this last even as unto thee." Is not it is it not lawful for me to do what I will with thine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? In other words. Am I, am I wrong for being generous just because you end it, right? Because of your jealousy. Is that, some, is that something that I'm doing wrong? He says, so the last shall be first and the first shall be last, for many shall be called, but few chosen. Now, I'll be honest with you. I do not have a 100% clarity as to exactly what that statement, the first shall be last and the last shall be first means. I have not fully grasped that. Um, but a good explanation that I found is, the giving of the whole day's wages to those that had done a full day's work is designed to show that God distributes his rewards by grace and sovereignty, not of debt. You see, what he's telling his disciples is, listen, when it comes to all these rewards that we're talking about, don't, don't get prideful, right? Don't get this wrong, right? It's up to me to give these rewards to whom I want to give them, right? And it's not about pride. It's not about private requests. He's also dealing with the subject of envy, right? Don't envy another man's rewards, Right, it's the it's the mindset that he's given them, so he's protecting them from, from thinking this um, this wrongly. Verse 17 And Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, them, Now why does he take the disciples apart? It's because he's about to talk about the cross. Right? Jesus had gained a lot of a following, and Jesus was 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 esteemed a prophet. Right? And when Herod had John the Baptist in prison, he was scared to kill him. Why? Because the people counted him as a prophet, and he didn't want there to be a revolt. Jesus had to take his disciples aside and tell them about his crucifixion because if the multitudes heard that he was going to voluntarily offer his life, there would probably be a revolt. And so he tells them this in secret in verse 18, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and discourage, to crucify him. In the third day he shall rise again. Now, you know how the disciples feel about this. They love talking about the kingdom. But when Jesus starts talking about the cross, they, they hate it. So much that the first time Peter heard this, he tried to rebuke Christ, right? He didn't, want to, he didn't want to talk about it. And there's multiple reasons. I mean, number one, they don't want their Messiah to die. But number two, if they were in close association with Jesus and they were going to kill Christ, what's going to happen to the disciples? So they don't like this. But it's amazing if you, if you reference Peter talking in 1 Peter, to Peter now, in regards to the cross, it's two totally different things, right? Peter opposes it here. Afterwards, he embraces it. In closing, let's go here. First, Peter, you love you love when when they say in closing, right? Just a few more verses, and they just go on and on and on and on. Amen. I like to think about Paul in the book of Acts when it says he preached from the morning until midnight, right? Long preaching. And it says that, that good old boy Eutychus, right? Remember he fell out of the window? And Peter went down, or Paul went down there and he, and he rose him from the dead. I can just imagine if Ethan fell out of a window, I couldn't pick him up, amen? I could not do that. First Peter, First Peter chapter 1, right? Verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found in praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, whom having not seen you love. In whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with what? Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Peter goes, Christ isn't with me now, but man, I love him and I know where he's at. In verse nine, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Verse, um, go down with me to verse um, 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, Past the time of your sojourn here in fear, for as now listen, listen, Peter. Peter, is, Peter likes the cross here in verse eighteen. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. I love verse nineteen. But with the precious blood of Christ, you see, Peter didn't understand it before, but now he looks back and he goes, "It was that blood that Jesus shed that saved me." And saved all of Israel. He called it precious blood. Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats, it's not possible that they should take away sins. But the pure, spotless blood of Jesus Christ was enough to remove the sins of all mankind for eternity. That precious blood, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who was verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. If you go to chapter 2, verse 21, listen to how Peter talks about suffering now. For even here were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, but when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins, should live under righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but now return unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul. See, Peter, now, before they couldn't understand it. Right? Jesus says, no, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down right by myself. And before they couldn't understand that Jesus was buffeted, but he didn't turn back. He was smitten, but he didn't fight back. He didn't say a word. Right? He didn't say a word, and he even tried to conceal the fact that he was going to the cross because it was his mission. It was his duty. One of the truest things that was ever said was when Jesus was on the cross, what did they say in mockery? They said he saved others. He himself, he cannot save. That was one of the truest statements ever. He couldn't save himself in order to save others. But Peter and these apostles, they didn't understand that as they were going to the cross. But looking back, oh my goodness, right? He said that, that, that Jesus Christ was my best friend. and He died for me. It's by his precious blood, right? His precious blood. That I'm saved, not just instantly, but every day of my entire life. Go back with me to Matthew. We just have a few more minutes here. Matthew. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 20. This part's funny. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children, James and John, right? James and John's good old mom, right? With her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She so saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in thy kingdom. Gotta love mama, right? She, I mean, who knows how. James and John were probably some 40 year old dudes here, and their mama comes up and asks Jesus, Hey, you know, can you help my boys out? All right? But Jesus answered and said, You know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine again, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. You see, Jesus didn't ask to have his name exalted above every name. It was because of his obedience to God that that happened. right? And only Jesus, right? he was given that kind of honor because of his mission, because of what he did, right? He didn't come into the world as a king. He came in the, in the form of a servant. And because he did that, God exalted him, right? That was the mystery, the essence of the kingdom. And he goes, I, you guys can't do that. It's not my control. Verse 24, and when the 10 heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren, right? They got mad because they probably wanted it too, but their moms went around to ask, okay? They got angry. But in verse 25, but Jesus called them unto him and he said, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercised dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto you, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Right? He goes, guess what, guys? The the, the irony is to be, to be the kind of authority that you guys want to be in, you actually got to humble and you got to serve those that you want to have authority over or else you're just like the gentiles right jesus came in more humble than any human beings ever came into this earth right and god exalted him because of that and so to the disciples he's like you have it all wrong you have it all wrong and as they departed from jericho a great multitude followed him and two blind men sitting by the wayside when they heard that jesus passed by cried out saying have mercy on us o lord thou son of david and the multitude rebuked them because they should hold their peace. But they cried the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And Jesus stood still and called them and said, What will ye that I shall do unto you?" They said unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Now at this point, they're identifying him as the Messiah, right? Thou son of David. But the problem is the kingdom's already been paused, Right? But they're crying out to Christ, and he doesn't respond to him. And this is what it's about, right? It's about Israel, right? Israel, they were crying unto God for their Messiah. But the problem is, is that they couldn't see their need, their spiritual need. That's why these, these men were crying out. And everybody knew what these blind men wanted Jesus to do. But what does he ask them? He goes, what will you have me to do? He goes, you have to identify the need. As Christians, we have to identify our need, right? A lot of preaching is, is negative. But it's not negative in the form of destruction. But we, it, the moment that the church and believers think that they do not have a need in Christ, is the moment when we die. Right. Roman Revelation three fourteen talks about the church of Laodicea. He says he says that they that they make the statement they're neither hot nor cold. Right. And they said we have need of nothing. Right. We have need of nothing. We need God so much more than we can realize. It, right. More than we can even fathom. We don't just need them when we're at church. I'm going to need them tomorrow morning, right, when the, when the alarm hits and you got to go to work, right, and, and everybody at work, they're not saved, they're, they're in their flesh. And you hear the things, you you know, you know, see the things. You need God. We need God. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you again for today. Thank you for those who came out tonight. They could have been so many other places, but they chose to be here. Lord, we thank you for their faithfulness. We praise you, Lord. We just pray that you give us a great week. I pray that you'd start a work in our church. I pray that you'd revive our hearts. I pray that you'd help us to see our need. And Lord, we pray that we would just depend upon you. We pray for the safety of all the, the members who are not here, those who are traveling. But Lord, we do pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit and you cause a revival to start in this church and in the surrounding area. We praise you in all things, in Jesus' name.